0: Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September, 2016. The following presentation is an interview conducted by Conference Master of Ceremonies Richard Jones, with the television and film writer, director, and producer David Wicks who brought to the small screen two of the highest-regarded Jack the Ripper programs, Barlow and Watt, in the acclaimed Jack the Ripper miniseries starring Michael Caine. Mr. Wicks is joined on stage by Sue Davis, a head researcher for that 1988 Michael Caine television show. As with all of the talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from all of the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine number 151 and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet receive Ripperologist magazine, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel with David Wicks and Sue Davis.
1: On on the Facebook page, I often do, virtually every month, I I post a a posting about what in your opinion is the best film ever made on Jack the Ripper and time and time again almost every time the one that gets the most votes is the Michael Kane one so uh, without further ado we're going to have a question and answer session David's also very kindly uh, agreed to take some questions from the floor afterwards as well so we'll, we'll have a chance to ask some questions afterwards uh, but we also have Sue Davis who uh, researched the programme as well so uh, we've really got a uh, double legend here uh, today so without further ado can we please give a big welcome to David Wicks and Sue Davis.
2: And just to say that just
1: reading down the list of everything David's done, it's, it's like all, all my favourite programmes uh, are on there. from. So anyway, so without further ado, uh, David, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your early life? For example, I understand your father Samuel was a stage
2: magician. He was. <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, he um, he started uh, with one stage name, Celsus the White Wizard, and uh, then he changed it when everything went Oriental, and uh, it was the it was the fashion to be somebody like Chang Ling Su. So he changed his name and did a thing called the Chinese Fantasy, and he called himself simply Chang. He was then. <laughs> he did, had such a success with this, he went all over the world he played everywhere like the Alhambra Palace, Paris, Paris and the uh, and Radio City Music Hall in New York and so on and so forth and um, I uh, he, he, was, he was really well well into middle age when I was born, if you like I was a mistake and um, <laughs> and, and so I, I wasn't with him but he wasn't with me for very long which is very sad but I did see him perform once. And that's a long story, but I won't tell it tonight.
1: (laughs) So um, from that, how did you
2: become interested in producing and directing? Well, um, it was very difficult, I think. Largely because he said, don't go into the entertainment business, boy. Whatever you do, it's a terrible business to be in. Get a proper job. Why don't you become an accountant or something interesting? <laughs> and, and, and so, you know what happens with kids when their parents tell them that sort of thing. I, I, I changed it completely around the other way. And so I wrote to every television company in, in, in the country and I got only one reply from Granada in Manchester. And they said, if I could come up for an interview they might consider me for their production trainee course. Well, it was a, it was an infamous thing this because they fired 50% of them every three months, <laughs> and so they took on about 25 or something like that, and uh, they, they got rid of half of them each. Well, I I was left with Brian Armstrong we were the only two left and we went round every department in Granada basically making the tea for different departments that's what we actually did but we are supposedly learning I don't think I learned much actually um, because everybody kept saying shut that door and where's the sugar <laughs> well, and, then, and then I just went on from there so uh, your early work, I mean,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your early work here, so we programmes such as Public Eye, Softly Softly, Task Force, Special Branch, Van der Valk, The Sweeney, The Professionals. I'm seeing a common theme uh, coming up here. <laughs> uh, but did, did you have an interest in policing before working in television? Was it simply that police-themed programmes were, were popular at the time?
2: Uh, it's a very good question. It's, um, it's actually a bit of both, but there's a third thing. Um, when you've done a successful crime series, the next company, it might be the BBC, it might, it might be you know Thames in those days, or uh, London Weekend in those days, um, would invite you to do their crime series, thinking that you had the knack. So there's a third thing as well. So it's a bit of free, to be honest. And can you tell
1: us how the 1973 miniseries Jack the Ripper with the characters Barlow and Watt uh, from Suffley Suffley, how that came about and, and did you have an interest in the Ripper case uh, prior
2: to that project? Well not really. Um, <clears throat> uh, I got on very well with a writer called Elwin Jones and um, he had invented, uh, I think part invented, Z cars and then Soffly. Um, Softly Softly, um and uh, I got on with him very well. Uh, he was a bit of a martinet, and a lot of other people didn't get on with him well, and, and there were all kinds of shoutings in offices and things of that sort. But I got on with him very well. He was he's a very nice Welshman, and, and, um, uh, and we go off to the pub, you see. And he said, do you know what I want to do? And I said, no, no idea. I'll go and get you another pint. No, 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 no. Um, I, I, want to do, I want to do Jack the Ripper, because nobody's ever done it properly. And then he came up with this idea, and he said, what do you think of this idea? Barlow and Watt, two of the most loved, famous, understood and known detectives in Britain, um, fictional ones, of course, played by Alan Strapper-Jones and, uh, and Frank Windsor. Um, they take time off their duty to inspect uh, some of the files, and then they get hooked. And then they find Jack the Ripper. I said, they do. <laughs> uh, he said, yes. I said, then who might that be? He said, I haven't worked it out yet. I'm right. <laughs> he said, but if I, if I were to go into Leonard Lewis' office, he was, he was the producer of, uh, of Soppy Soppy, and, and, and ask him about it. Would you? Could I refer? Would you support and an write a? Oh, I said, "Oh, God, all right." Uh, yeah. Okay. 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 I'd rather have got him another beer, but never mind. We did it, and um, it kind of worked, and uh, it sort of was all right. And I met all kinds of people, like like Hobo Sickert, you know, Joseph Sickert, <laughs> not Walter, um, the painter, um, but. Um, uh, who claimed to be a member of the royal family? I can't tell you. you, you the claims of, of, of some—not anybody in this room—but <laughs> some people who study the river—the claims are outrageously wrong. <laughs> but never mind. You know, it was Queen Victoria. She did it with a knife. You know, uh, and I've got—I've 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 got, I've got the knife here. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's got her initials. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you get that kind of stuff, you know, so it. Well, I mean, I mean to, to me,
1: uh, and I think many people in this room as well, uh, it was that program that, that really got my interest uh, sparked in Jack and I think it must apply to so many people uh, in this room today. That really did pique an interest. So, just to take you back to, to that uh, that program, just to so it's come to the end of the program, it's a success, and It's it's you're rapping. Shall I use the term? So you're rapping, Uh, and when that work finished, did you have any idea that you'd revisit the Ripper later in your career? Uh, Was the 1988 Jack the Ripper TV series a long
2: time in development, or did it just come out of the blue? Oh, oh, was it ever? It was in development hell for well something like a decade. no, I didn't. I didn't, to be honest with you, think that I was going to do it, because I had to had her up to here by the time we'd had, you know, uh, <coughs> like Frank Wednesday, you know, and Alan Scratford, johns looking down his nose. I mean, I, I could, really couldn't have faced any more of it, and, and I went off to do other things. Um, but I had a dear old friend at uh, what used to be Thames television, ITV, in London, and uh, his name is Lloyd Shirley. He was the head of the drama department. And I got on very well with him. Um, there's a common link here. We kept going to the pub in I. <laughs> <laughs> it's only really water down there. It's all right. Now, <laughs> anyway, uh, he said, um, is there anything you'd like to do? And I said, yes, because he had the power to say yes. Or at least to convince the board of Thames um, and I said I had a funny thought the other day and this was in I think 1984 I said do you know it's not time to do it now but do you know the anniversary hundredth anniversary of the Ripon murders is coming up in 1988 and he said he was he was a Canadian he said my God, we gotta mark that. So I said, okay. Um, and he said, I said, look, I tell you what, I'll do a deal, deal with you. Um, it's four years ahead. Don't you dare do it with anybody else. Otherwise, I'll never go to the pub with you again. And he said, he said, not. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come um, on. We were professional and all that kind of stuff. So we shook hands on it. And bond was his word. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore, by the way, in this world. But it was. We shook hands on it. And then I started to look at it. I know it's four years ahead, but it's a huge, massive, massive subject. I mean, you people in this room, don't need me to tell you that. Uh, at the time, there were 40-odd books published already. There must be nearly 50 now
3: <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> and one of them was done by Mark Daniel from our series. <laughs> anyway. Uh, right. And so along came a very nice young lady having just come down from her university. We get all kinds, you know, you get you get so many application letters and all that stuff it goes on all the time, you know. I'd love to get into the media and all that kind of thing. Um, and you get you know, three or four a week to be honest um, if you're in, in, in production and um, this young lady impressed me She, uh, I, I, I don't know whether she's sitting next to me now um, I don't know whether I'm absolutely right about this Sue, but I think you came for two weeks work experience and stayed for 11 years I
3: think
2: I came for lunch oh lunch, it was only
3: lunch
2: and <laughs> 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 stayed for 11 years <laughs> well she was really, she was remarkably good, you see, and I, I know she's going to blush and I shouldn't do this, but really she was absolutely splendid. And my business partner at the time said, what is she doing? And I said, well, she's researching Jack the Ripper. He said, well, why? I said, well, because, it, we, and I told him the story of Lloyd Shirley and the handshake and all that kind of stuff. And we. Honestly, she just went on doing it, and she did an enormous, huge, vast amount of work. I mean, we didn't have a paperless office in those days. Oh, no. no. So, therefore, there was one of our offices at Twickenham Studios was actually piled high with what she kept bringing in. And I'm going to ask her, if she, if I may, ask Sue to tell you what she did in those four years, because it is absolutely staggering.
3: Well we started with the books, I think is where we started, because um, we were talking about it earlier and I think the beauty of when we started the research, we started with a complete blank page, we didn't have an ending, this was to be a proper investigation like a peace investigation. So we started with the books to see what was out there and then I mean, it's so hard, you know, my children fight very hard. There wasn't an internet. You had to get out in and walk miles and miles in London from various places to find that it wasn't there. It was somewhere else. And so I used to be out all day, no wonder John missed me because I used to do the sandwich run. So if I wasn't there, they didn't get their sandwiches. So um, it was the books and then I had to make a list then to think of all the places where we actually did the research. And it was Public Records Office, all of them, Scotland Yard Files, Law Society Records, home office files, royal court circulars, cabinet office files, hand-seared newspaper, back issues UK and US, and, of course, the Black Museum, Lindsay, of course, um, which was fascinating. But it took such a long time, and when I kept bringing things back, we'd sort of think we were going one way, and then I'd go out, and I'd go somewhere else, and I'd come back with more information, and we'd go, ah, that doesn't work. So it'd be like, literally, we had, I remember one day when we were in your, in your house, and we covered the entire floor, and it was literally... <laughs> you think about TV series now and they have it up on these boards, It's all very flashy. It was on the floor, and you had to step between the papers, and then that would be shelved, and then it really wasn't a proper investigation. And the problem was is when I looked at files, um, and you couldn't photocopy anything, you couldn't take a pen in, you had to copy everything out in pencil. And then when you go back the next day, that might not be there. And so I've started writing something, I think, well I'll carry on writing that out now, word for word, verbatim. No, not that I. And then there'd be something else in there. So it took us a long, long while. It was four years. <laughs> four years. We did you know, I did some other things in between, but it was four years of constant research until we had this huge body that we were able to then as I say, a proper investigation to be able to come to some conclusions. And that's how it sort of came about really. I'm missing out. (laughs) Seems like quick four years went, but yes, (laughs) Yes. a lot of shoe leather and no internet. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, one thing, one thing you've said, which is really very germane, a lot of the files, particularly the official ones, you look at the outside. You used to come and tell me this. You look at the outside of the file, and it would have from 31 to 72 documents, you see. But they stopped at 44, and there weren't any more. Where have they gone? And you would look and see who'd taken them out 50 years ago, and you would think, wait a minute, is that really an official signature? And these these files were constantly, had been constantly weeded and when Sue was so insistent on going back because she, she's very persistent and very professional they would um, say are you coming back next Wednesday then and there would be three more files missing and some redactions oh yes something very big going on there still almost a hundred years after the embargo had been put on now you don't um, you don't put a hundred-year embargo on something unless it, the the perpetrator is up here somewhere, and so all those people who say that it must have been like Dan Farson, for instance, <coughs> who I had several rows with, um, who insisted that it was a cricketer called John Montague, John Druitt. I mean, you know, I mean, truly um, enough already. Um, I couldn't even spell the word Druitt, and neither could he. <laughs> uh, um, uh, they'd embargo the files. Lord Salisbury would insist on embargoing the fires for a century to save the the, the, the face of Mr. Druitt. Oh, Enough already. So we we knew we, we were onto something, um, and uh, and then I I had a stroke of luck. Soon as well, I'm gonna say, I hope we. Have we got the press in the room? Um, We could call them. (laughs) Don't worry. The terrible problem is they'll call me. Um, Right. I have to be very careful what I say here. Um, I did have some well-placed friends in those days, particularly one who happens now to have died. Um, and um, I put this to the right authorities and when I say the right authorities I'm not going to name I'm going to say the right authorities and I uh, I said look the 100th anniversary is coming up and those files which we knew were partly useless because of everything found or not found those files will be opened Am I right? Yes, came the reply. And I said, Well, when that happens, every movie company and television company worldwide will be scavenging those files, and you'll have all kinds of awful things said about all kinds of people who shouldn't have awful things said about them, and it will do the country absolutely no good. Or you could let us have a look first
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's Thames television and it's EMI and you know who we are um, and we got the money and we can really do it and we'll be on the air in that November the same November they, <laughs> that's when you open the files and we'll be already on the air is that possible oh lots of deliberation and thought and eventually I got a call to go and see. Nothing on the phone, you understand. And <clears throat> and I got only one thing in the office. I said, "Well," and this person went. That's all, and went, and so <laughs> And everything was open to us and one of the things we found uh, found, found this was marvellous we had our suspicions about times and places and all that kind of stuff and you know uh, it's, it's a member of the royal family who happens to have been at dinner with three crown heads of Europe in Balmoral two hours before the, oh come on you know this is not possible they didn't have helicopters come on um we were taken all day to get down. That kind of stuff. And so we found something very special. Sue found, I'm going to say Ackland. Yes. Um,
3: yes. The death certificate for Sir William Gull was signed by his son-in-law, which is in fact an illegal thing to do. So Ackland signed the death certificate, not allowed. You know, not at all. And uh, this became a sort of a prime piece of evidence for us at that point, and it was the real game changer for us. Um, and and that's when we knew we were to we knew we were onto the right thing then, didn't we? Yeah. But
2: well, what what we did was we we back tested it. From that, we said, okay, this man has risked prison by signing this medical association banned him you can't do this you see because if you've got a relative you can't sign their debts to because you might have murdered them to get their money you see that's why it's, it's, it's illegal but he risked prison why well somebody must have said don't worry old lad you won't go to prison we'll, we'll protect you but someone's going to sign this damn thing and uh, we've stopped him haven't we I think you get the point, big. So we back-tested it, and we said, look, there's only one person who fits into all the holes all the way down the checklist. And so I went to Lloyd Shirley, and I said, I think I've solved it, meet soon. (laughs) And and he said, right. We then went off to CBS because it was a very expensive piece. Uh, So there you are, there's the story.
1: And can I just ask, uh, from a personal point of view, because a, a lot of these documents now are fairly well known uh, and people see them, but at that time, just to sit there and turn those pages and look at the. What, what did that feel like?
3: I think all old documents I think, are fascinating to most. I mean, most people here, I'm sure, would be fascinated by old documents, whether it's old newspapers or anything, but to actually have your hands on proper police files in handwriting, not always easy to read. Um, it's, it's pretty magical. It's capturing that moment in time of something really very eventful. So it was, um, it was a bit spine tingling at times, I've got to say. It was amazing. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. So get, getting back to the. Uh, so you're making. So, your, your main, so the, it's gone ahead, the filming's going ahead. Uh, um, we know the, the original cast was different to those who appeared in the final broadcast series. Uh, can you tell us how this came about?
2: Yes, well. We started to make a videotaped version of a script by a writer called Derek Marlowe. Um, And uh, I got a call uh, from my agent in Los Angeles, um, the William Morris office. And he said, um, hey, I think I can get you a gig. I think I can get you a gig, with see, to do Jekyll and Hyde. I said, well, I can't, I'm doing Jack the Ripper. He said, you're doing what? I said, because uh, I'm, I'm in London doing Jack the Ripper. He said, Jack the Ripper? And he said, <clears throat> Jekyll and Hyde, uh, let's do Jack the Ripper. So I said, well, well hang on, I'm, I'm shooting it. And he said. Um, well, who are these people? Who, who, what, what, what do you mean? Thames? What, what's that mean? And I said, it's Thames. He said, oh, right. Um, well, um, uh, listen, um, I, I'm, 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 I'm going to get on to Lorimar and I'm, I'm going uh, to get on to Kim Masters's at, at CBS. I, I'm, I'm the, you, you can't make Jack the Ripper p- 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 just for England and I said well we'll sell it to other places you know like the Isle of Man and all kinds of things and he said um, he said well go back, on, go back on your set and get on with it don't stop because that's the that's the trick you don't stop because then they've got you um, I said okay and I told everybody at Thames David L. Steen and, um, Lloyd Shirley and all the others um, on the board and um they said you must understand that there have been many co-productions of America now many, but we were the very first and um, there had been a couple of documentaries apparently, but we were the very first and so um, I had this awful problem um, the Americans would not accept our cast now Barry Foster was a very nice guy and I'd worked with him on Van der and I put him in the Sweeney Feature film um, and he was a very nice chap uh, but they insisted that we had to have a completely two legs up, uh, two floors up um, cast and then they would come in with a great deal of American money. of course you can imagine the board of Thames loved that and said well you better tell your cast they're all out and we're stopping and we're starting again and uh, we're going to cast uh, some, some name that they'll accept. Well the only name that they would accept at that level in those days at that particular time that would fit Abilene was the one we got, was Michael Caine. Um, he was from the right part of the world, and he had that sensibility, you know. Um, he wasn't Ian McKellen, if you know what I mean. You know. And so, because uh, that wouldn't have worked, and so we got him. And uh, oh, i had lunch with him at Langham's and all that kind of stuff three or four times, and because we had to then. We, you know, our Tim's version with Barry Foster it was only three hours and I had to ex- extend it to four hours and they wouldn't accept the writer and so I had to do it and I ex- expanded it to four hours and it was it was a pig of a job but we did it and that's the story so, Matt, so
1: Michael Caine comes on board we have all the, the actors in there uh, are you aware of whether any of the cast uh, either the original ones or the final members did any of them,
2: as far as you're aware, have any prior interest in the Ripper case? As far as I know, not. Um, I mean, what you do is you you have a casting director and uh, she, they're always, they're always, they're always women, because they choose very well. Um, she comes up with six names. Uh, Sprattling. Top, my top name for that, having read it three times, is this, this, this and this, because he has a certain menace and he is blah, blah, blah. And you say, Right, but he's not available. He's with the Royal Shakespeare Company until March. <laughs> and so it goes on until you've narrowed it down to one or two. And then you say, I'd like to see those two And they come in, and if they're not if they're not Ian McKellen, you get them to read before you because you insult a star actor, if you ask me that. And um, they all say, for every part, oh, this is a dream part, I really want it. You know, they all say that. And the, uh, I've always been interested in Jack the Ripper all my life, you know, from this eye. you know. I've read all the books, you know. Uh, I'm the one, I'm the one. Uh, so I couldn't tell, is the answer.
1: <laughs> so uh, so Barry Foster, who, uh, who you had worked with on Vanderbalk, uh, he was originally cast as Frederick Aberlein. How do you think his Aberlein would have compared to Michael Caine's portrayal?
2: I think the Americans were right. We needed major star power. And you don't get major star power if you're not a major actor, truly. Um, it, they make it look easy if they're good. That's the, that's the truth. Um, and Michael is absolutely superb. So it looks as if he's just sort of walking through it perfect. Um, he had a more powerful image and a more powerful approach i think Uh, barry was very good as um, uh, less of a bruiser what michael said to me when he read the script he said it was the best script he'd ever had he always says that to everybody Um, (laughs) um, he said the only thing he found wrong with it it was the staples fell out and he was reading it in bed with his wife arena um, and passing pages to her he said that's the only thing wrong with the script was the stapling <laughs> and um, he um, he knew I think right from the get go that this is the right thing for him and when he accepted it of course I had to go and have lunch with him and not be told until we are getting close, close to the main course and I'm sitting here wondering if he's going to sing it. and and uh, he said, ah, oh, David, I want to play him <coughs> relentless. <laughs> and I said, play him relentless, please. <laughs> and he did. Um, and he even overcame the, um, the drink problem to win out. So, so uh, coming back, because
1: Michael King plays Adeline as an alcoholic battling with the bottle. Uh, at what point of the series develop, uh, development was this decided on, that he was going to be battling the bottle?
2: Well, I had read something, and it was something about his past and why he'd been passed over for promotion from sergeant to inspector. Um, because he'd, um, I, I think he'd been sitting in the office at Scotland Yard and was, was, was a bit suzzled. I think that's what it was. Um, and I think this was mentioned to me uh, by one of the people we interviewed. For, for, I can't remember who it was. And I thought, oh, that's that's great, because it's, it's it's a it's a leading character with his own demons. Ah, we've got we've got another another layer here. Yes, we'll use this. And so we did. And he played it to perfection. I might tell you, it isn't like him at all. He is not anything like that. <laughs> you will have a pint of beer with you, but that's it. <laughs> so because,
1: uh, as we mentioned at the start, that, uh, all, all the work that you've done on that, virtually all those fantastic police series, uh, did you work on the, those numerous police and detective dramas prior to the Jack Ripper? Uh, did it influence the way you portrayed the likes of Sprattling, Godley, and Warren?
2: in the Jack River, It's a very good question, it did, yes. <clears throat> yes, it did. Um, particularly, certain police attitudes, which I don't know whether they still are around today, but I came across them um, when doing the Sweeney. Um, we, we had Mr. Spratling's murder list, if you remember. Um, uh, the idea that when there's a murder, they, he rounded up the same people every time. <laughs> <laughs> to make it look as if he was doing his job, and then he'd send them all home. Um, and, and he used to, he used to give them soup from a soup kitchen to invite them in, so that we'd have all these scruffy people from from the East End. Whenever there was a murder, the public thought, oh yes, he's doing his job. That's all right. But he never did his job, you see. Um, well, there's a certain kind of attitude in the place walls was. Um, of that sort of thing, not as extreme as that, because we got a good laugh out of that one, but... um, Yes, so the the, the truth is I learnt a lot about it from the previous stuff,
1: yes. And and famously, the series had four different endings, uh, with reportedly few crew members actually knowing which would be used in the broadcast version. Uh, Can you tell us about this and the efforts that you went to in order to keep your endings a secret?
2: Yes. the press interest in this, it, it is the world's most famous murder case. It really is, even now. Yes, we've had the Yorkshire River, and yes, we've had ISIS and all kinds of things, but Jack the River is a very special thing. And uh, if you are going to solve it, and we did say, you know, yes, we're going to solve it, the press of the world gets onto your press office. The phones never stop, night and day you know uh, it's, it's that kind of thing you know and, uh, and you get, and you get um, all kinds of suggestions from them uh, are you going to say that it's well, and then they'll give you a name you know um, you can say that it's Sun Yat-sen um, no we're not um, if you've got the world's press and they are ravenous for the world's greatest murder mystery really ravenous because every journalist has to earn a living by going to editors and making offers, they call offers meetings and they've got to go in and say hey have I got a, a super scoop for you today you see I've got the answer to Jack the Ripper and when CBS puts it out on Friday night Friday morning you can spoil it completely by putting a headline in the paper the Ripper is Montague John Drew. Pa, and of course the editor says Are you sure okay and he puts the headline up. and of course nobody watches your show because they spoiled it and all the advertising that's been sold by CBS throughout America and by RTL and by um, the Swedes and, and Italians and because everybody took it as you know um, There were subtitles and of course the Germans put a put a track on you know Well, I couldn't send this all around the world <coughs> and <coughs> CBS agreed How are we going to keep this to ourselves? And I said well, there's the crew as well, you know There's the labs, there's the sound crew, there are the musicians. What kinds of people will know what the ending is? And uh, they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I think you're going to have to have four endings. And the four was because that was a misleading thing, because it was really a fifth. It was part of one ending and part of another. So they could never have guessed it, even if they'd known. And I think about four or five of us knew it. And Lloyd Shirley didn't even know it at Thames. I wouldn't tell anybody. I wouldn't tell the press office. I wouldn't tell anybody. And uh, so I was a, I, I just had Sue knew, um, and I think one or two others, you know. Uh, and that's why we kept it a secret.
0: Did, did you at
1: any stage ever, ever consider using one of the other oh, dummy endings?
2: No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Because um, if we if we'd given a pulse ending, we couldn't say, "Hey, <laughs> fooled you." We couldn't do that. So we had to get the right one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what happened about that. I was I was actually finishing. Um, I think that this is for the first night because it was in two two nights to two hours and I was I was finishing off um, I think it was for Sweden um, they, they hadn't got the right trailer or some damn thing and I was finishing off some grading that's uh, color temperatures and, and um, my driver I'd already got the chief engineer of Thames to come and fix my my tv my home tv my own and make it perfect and it was uh it was a sony high black trimitron it was it was state of the art in those days now we've got flat screens and all that kind of it. and four screens as big as hyde park now but this was a big one um those days and the engineer tweaked it to perfection you see um and my driver was looking at his watch and I was finishing this thing for Sweden and he he, he said um I ain't no no you got you know you need time to get home and I had to cross London because I lived in Kensington and um, I was cutting it very fine and I knew it and I sent this thing off to, to Sweden and and I ran down the stairs and I got in the car and we were home in moments and honestly I'm not making this up, the streets were empty and I had seen this once before in Los Angeles when I lived there for the first episode of Shogun which emptied the streets emptied the pubs, emptied the bars, emptied the restaurants and I thought, surely not, I mean I I, I was tingling, I thought Oh my God, is this going to be a, oh God, surely not. No, 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 there's a road up, uh, down the road. No, there wasn't. And I watched it and I could hardly, I could hardly think what what was going on. And about two thirds of the way through, the phone rang and the, uh, in those days, the jigta ratings um, that they they monitored. them. And I had, David Elstein on the phone to me saying, wow. Do you know, (laughs) for the first hour, he said, wow. He said, you've got 88. Now, I'll never forget that number because it was 1988. You've got 88% audience. Ah, that's it. You can't look back after that. That's marvellous, and uh, there's your story. <laughs> this is the days when
1: audiences were big. Big TV. We're not talking today on chat. That's cable. These are big
2: audiences. Oh God, yes. Um, do you want to know the number? Yes, please. It, 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 it was it was printed the next day in the Daily Mirror. I don't know why the others didn't pick it up, but I've got it. You're not going to believe it. 23 million. That is almost half the British population. Ah, oh, that's it, you know. You don't. Uh, retire. <laughs> you know, that's it. Nothing <laughs> else you can do. What, what was that feeling like? Oh, I didn't believe it. I mean, uh, you know. Um, up to that time, I've, I, I've, made, I've made feature films, and I've made things like Silver Dream, Race, and things like that, you know. Um, they were pretty high budget for those days. And uh, nowadays, of course, everything has a B on the front of it, you know. The budgets are in billions now. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, but we were making pictures then for what they now pay Tom Cruise for an afternoon. Um, but it was staggering feeling. Really. It was
1: staggering so, did you genuinely believe that Sir William Gold was the Ripper,
2: or, or was it simply that the solution was the best TV? Oh, no, uh, no. We went through the four years of trouble. We were. We could not possibly have said. Who is, who is it who said, uh, when you have eliminated. Was it George Orwell? Or Somebody. Sure, that's it oh, yeah, you're right you're right um when you've eliminated all <laughs> the possibilities that are wrong the last remaining one must be the answer and it, it was we did eliminate 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 and uh, it, it has to be it has to be first of all it's got to be an important person and if you eliminate all the important people who would cause the Prime Minister to embargo it for a hundred years? You are left with almost none. And then you have fantasists, you know, like Hobo Sicko. <laughs>
1: so, uh, I mean, you've answered this in a way already but uh, uh, but just to say you went on to make Jekyll and Hyde with Michael Kane uh, and was that uh, as a direct result
2: of the working relationship you've developed with the Jack the Ripper yes absolutely he said let's do it again so we did it um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something that will kill you um, when we've done that that was a big success we did it for ABC um, and he said Right. What's next? So I said, well, I'm thinking that we should do the trilogy. Frankenstein? see Ripper, Jekyll. Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. No. And I thought there was no enthusiasm there. It was very strange. Well, I ha- happened to share my English agent with him. It was Dennis Sellinger of ICM. And um, Dennis is a dear old friend, you see, as well. And um, after a while, <clears throat> I couldn't get an answer from Michael. He, you know, wasn't, he wasn't forthcoming. And Dennis rang me, the agent, and said, um, Michael doesn't want to do it. I said, oh, bye-bye. So we cast Patrick Bergen and Randy Quaid and Sir John Mills and we made it um, for ABC because they'd wanted me to do it in the first place, if you remember. Um, Right. And uh, it was, oh, I can't tell you, it was probably, we finished shooting and were probably in post-production when Dennis happened to say to me, how did it go? And I said, yeah. He said, oh, it's a pity. It, isn't it? I said, yes. He said, but you know why he turned it down, don't you? I said, no, I didn't. And, no, he wouldn't tell me, and you didn't tell me. He said, well, in Jekyll, when he changes into Mr. High he's got all these prosthetics, you see, and, and he, he hated having that on every day and torn off and put on and torn off and, and the hours in the makeup truck every day. He hated that stuff and uh, so he didn't want to play Frankenstein.
3: Uh-huh.
2: I said, but that's the monster. <laughs> I was asking him to play Dr. Frankenstein. He said, oh. I thought, I thought oh. I said, it was too late now. I shot it. <laughs> That's the story of that one. (laughs) So,
1: what are your thoughts on the Ripper output since 1988, uh, such as Johnny Depp's From Hell, which of course presents a similar plot with The Gull, again revealed as The Ripper. Yes.
2: Um, Magic that. I wonder what gave him the idea of William (laughs) Gull. Yes, and I wonder what gave him the idea of... uh, I can, I, I can hear the production meeting, can't you? The story meeting. Um, hey, they did. They did he with the cane one. They, they had him, uh, you know, he's a bit of a tippler, you know. Uh, um, we can go better than that. Let's make him a real drug addict. <laughs> and that's why they did that. I can imagine that happening quite easily. Um, and so they. They've got to go one better. In other words, they copied what we did and went one better. That's what they did. And of the two,
1: uh, Michael Caine Johnny Depp, who would you say had the best Cockney accent? (laughs) (laughs) Johnny Depp without a... And and finally, uh, if you could go back in time and change one thing about the 1988 series, what would that one thing be? Um,
2: Shall I ask? ask, This is is very bad. I'll say a very bad thing. Um, In order to get it made, the deal I did, and my agent is responsible for it, um, was uh, I actually accepted a buyout. And so I didn't get any residuals. That's what I would change. change.
1: (laughs) Do we have any good lawyers in the room? (laughs) Now, uh, I'm just going to come out, uh, if anyone's got any questions, so I'll come out, and Dave's kindly uh, agreed to ask questions. So I'll just. I've just getting myself unravelled here and I'm just going to come actually, over here. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah. oh, quite loud. <laughs> Not a question as such. Um, I'm actually one of those people who can remember where I was when it was shown. This is a bad mother moment. My small boy was in hospital having an operation and I don't drive. Um, and I could either get the half past six bus home and watch it or the half past eight bus and miss it. And I kept saying to him, you're going to be fine, aren't you? You're going to be fine. You don't need to be here now. Um, and I, I, to this day, he reminds me of the fact that they left him in hospital on his own to go home and watch it. Um, but the thing I wanted to say was, uh, I recently moved to Dorchester in Dorset, and the hospital was set up by public subscription. And some of the people subscribing via balls and parties and things was the Dyke Acklands, Frederick Trees, and also the Druitt family. Wow.
1: And we got some questions. I'll just go, I'll, I'll work backwards and, uh, well, metaphorically. But, yes. It's Okay.
2: Right. Thank you both for a very uh, entertaining talk. I was just wondering uh, with regards to William Gill, um, the main um, evidence seems to be that his son-in-law signed the death certificate, and that there was some cover-up, which would inevitably um, involve some higher echelon person. Whatever evidence was there that uh, linked into it, the death certificate. <laughs> it's signed. She got it.
0: That's it. Yeah. And, then, uh, and that was Richard Jones, interviewing television and film writer, director, and producer David Wicks, along with Sue Davis. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ripperologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all the talks and to the speakers themselves for granting us their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper, East End, and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at Ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook pages, so you can find a lot of more information there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ruperologist community and you, our listeners. And so I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.